famous museum in the world. It houses some of the greatest treasures anywhere on this planet. If one were to tour the Louvre, you will find magnificent artwork, sculptures, and paintings in its gallery. And as you go through the Louvre, you will come across the magnificent painting of Louis XIV. Or you will stop by the massive portrait of Napoleon at his coronation. And of course, as you continue through the Louvre, you will come to the iconic picture, that painting of the Mona Lisa. Well, the writer of Hebrews similarly takes us on a tour a tour of the gallery of faith, where the portraits of the great men and women of the past who trusted in God are in a sense hung. We began in chapter 11 by following the writer of Hebrews with his gallery of faith, where he showed us at first great men like Abel and Enoch, and Noah, the last time we followed him to look at the portrait of Abraham, the greatest figure in the Old Testament, the greatest exemplar of faith. And he showed us Abraham's faith as a faith that was obedient, a faith that was future-looking because he looked to the city that had foundation whose maker and builder is God. And that is ultimately his faith was one which rested upon the greatness and the power of God, believing that God was able to even raise the dead. Now as we continue this tour of the gallery of faith, the writer now comes to the portrait of Moses. It is hard to overestimate the importance of Moses in the Jewish literature and thinking. There was no other Old Testament figure, not even David, who was greater than Moses. The only person who was greater than Moses was Abraham himself. And now we've come to see Moses and the greatness of his faith. It should not surprise us that the writer draws us and points us to Moses as an exemplar of faith. Already in chapter 3, he tells us that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. And Christ was greater because he is the son, the one who, whose house in which Moses served. Now what he does in verses 23 to 28 of Hebrews 11 is that he draws out three particular times or instances in Moses' life where his faith was exhibited. First of all, we see in verses 24 to 26, we see Moses' faith when he came of age, that is, when he came to maturity. The second phase in which we see something of Moses' faith is in verse 27, when he departed from the land of Egypt. And the third example of faith in verse 28 is when he kept the Passover. So what he does is that he points to three times, three examples of Abraham's faith. When he came to maturity, when he departed from Egypt, and when he kept the Passover. Now within these three episodes, these three vignettes into the faith of Moses, we have something of the character of faith explained for us, held up before us. And I want to look then at Moses' faith and the spiritual, theological character of faith that he had. First, by looking at Moses' faith, it becomes clear that true faith, first and foremost, identifies with the suffering people of God, and ultimately identifies with the despised Christ. True faith identifies with the suffering people of God and ultimately 
with the despised Christ. The, the writer begins in verse 23, not so much with Moses' faith, but the faith of Moses' parents. Because he tells us that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. If you go back to the account in Exodus chapter 2, we know that the Pharaoh had given a command that all male babies that were born to Jewish parents were to be killed at birth. They were to be tossed into the Nile. And the reason he did that was because the population of Jews was growing too fast for his liking. And they, they were therefore seen as a threat that would one day overpower the Egyptians. And so he wanted to get rid of male babies. But when Moses was born, his parents were not afraid of the king's command. They were not afraid of him. And because of that, because they saw the child was beautiful, perhaps they saw something of the grace of God upon this child, they refused to kill him. They were like the midwives who defied the order of the king. They did it by faith because they trusted in God. And then the writer in verse 24 comes to the faith of Moses that was similar to the faith of his parents. It says, by faith, when Moses became of age, doesn't mean that he didn't have faith before. He just singles out this first episode of faith in his life. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches, greater riches than the treasures of e in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Again, in Exodus chapter 2, we have the account of how God delivered Moses. And his name really means drawn from water because he was saved from the water. We know the account of how his parents hid him on the bank of the Nile in bush rushes, among the bush rushes in a, in a little ba basin or basket. That's where they left him there. On the water. And you see how amazing God is because God used someone from Pharaoh's very family to save Moses. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river and heard him crying. And she delivered him. She saved him. She took him. She adopted him to be her son. And you see something more of the amazing power of God. Not only did God use someone from Pharaoh's house to save Moses. When Pharaoh's daughter wanted a wet nurse, somebody to take care of this baby, she actually paid Moses' mother, without knowing it, to take care of her own son. That's the power of God. That's the providence of God. And Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh, in the palace. He was royalty. He was by adoption the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and more importantly, the grandson of Pharaoh himself. He had all the wealth and the pleasure. He had all, everything that he could ever desire, being royalty in Egypt. So much so that one, that commentators and theologians have argued that he was even second in line to the throne. He had wealth and he had power and yet the writer says by faith when he became of age he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter that is he gave it up he gave up the prestige and the power that he had in Egypt he did it when he went out one day in the fields among his own people and he saw an Egyptian beating up on one of his people and he intervened, and in the process, the Egyptian was killed. And the writer is citing this as an example of him, of his faith in siding with the people of God. You see, this was not the crazy idea of a youth 
who says, you know, I, I, I know I'm born in the lap of luxury. I have a gold spoon in my mouth, but I want to strike out on my own. I want to earn my own way through life. No, it's, this is not the, the, the nonsense that is found often in youth. This is a sober decision. By faith, when he became of age, when he turned 40, that's when you really became a man. So everybody else before that asked to be seen as manlings, but not men. See, he became a man when he was 40, when he came of age. And he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he chose to suffer with the people of God. He chose, in verse 25, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. He made a choice by faith. Not only would he not then claim his Egyptian right, he identified himself with the despised people, with a slave people. Why? Because he was rejecting the passing pleasures of sin that was before him in Pharaoh's household. That was by implication a decadent and demoral and sinful lifestyle in Pharaoh's palace. And he was rejecting it because it was temporary, because it was not going to satisfy. Furthermore, in his identification with the people of God, he was in solidarity with Christ in his humiliation. For the writer says in verse, 20, in verse 25 that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. In verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ, the, the shame of Christ, the shame of association with Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now, we must not conclude from this that somehow Moses at this time had a clear picture that his sufferings, the suffering of God's people and his suffering alongside them uh, was indeed the suffering of Christ or to be connected with the Christ's suffering. What the writer is doing in Hebrews is, is, is suggesting that by suffering with the people of God, he was in principle suffering with Christ because Christ and his people, whether in the Old or New Testament, are always identified. You see something of this in when the Lord met the Apostle Paul and on the road he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ is always linked with his people and his suffering then, uh, their suffering then become his suffering. And so by associating with the suffering people of Israel, he was associating with the reproach of Christ. In principle, he was joining the side of Christ. And the reason he did this is that the writer says that he esteemed the reproach of Christ, the shame of being identified with Christ, greater riches than all the wealth of Egypt. What was he doing? He took the side of God's people and ultimately of Christ because he was looking to a reward, a reward that was greater than any reward he could receive in Egypt. You see, faith, genuine faith, is that which identifies itself with God's people and with the rejected Christ. But if faith is seen as solidarity with Christ's people and ultimately with the Christ. In verse 27, we see the second aspect, the second character of faith. We see, secondly, that sincere faith not only identifies with God's people and ultimately with the crucified Christ, but that sincere faith endures. Sincere faith is not a dry weather faith, but a faith that endures, and it endures by continually seeing the invisible God. Look at what he says in verse 27. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It is by faith that Moses left Egypt. It is by faith that he endured and he endured by seeing the invisible God. Now, there's a lot of issues here for which we must at least account. And so one of the questions is, the, the text tells us that in verse 27, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And the question is, when did he do this? We need to note that there are two occasions on which Moses left 
Egypt. The first occasion is when one day he went out in the field and he saw, or he went out and he saw two Israelite men fighting. And he decided to part them. And one of them, when he parted, when he parted them, one of them says to him, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses now realizes, realizes that the act of killing the Egyptian was known. And, the, and we are told in Exodus 2.14 that he was afraid. And when Pharaoh sought to kill him because of what he had done, he fled to Midian. That's the first time he left Egypt. The second time he left is, of course, after the plagues and the exodus when the Red Sea parted and he went out with the people of God. Some, in trying to overcome the difficulty in the text in verse 27 where it says, he forsook Israel not fearing the wrath of the king, they say that he left this text is referring to the second time he left when he went in the Exodus. The main contention to this, however, is such an interpretation would violate the chronological order of the text. By that I mean, we see the writer looking at Abraham's faith at successive periods in his life. We see him when he came of age to maturity. And we see him when he forsook Egypt. If you look at verse 28, we see the Passover. There's a, there's a chronology here. He grew up, he left, he kept the Passover. If verse 27 refers to his leaving during the Exodus, the writer would have violated the order of his life by putting the Exodus before the Passover. And we know that the Passover occurred before the Exodus. So, on that basis, it might be that he's referring to the first time he left Egypt, after he had killed the Egyptian. But that does not solve the difficulty that is before us. Because how then does the text says, not fearing the king, he left, when we are told very specifically in Exodus 2.14 that he was afraid. I think the answer to that lies in the fact that after he was discovered, Moses was afraid. But by the time he resolved to leave Egypt, he had moved from fear to faith in God. The writer says, by faith he left, he abandoned Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And the basis of his leaving, and the basis of his leaving and abandoning is by persevering in seeing the invisible God. Here we have a paradox, because if God is invisible, then surely he cannot be seen. The Bible tells us that God is invisible, that God is not flesh and blood, that God is spirit. And being spirit, he cannot then be seen with human eyes. The scriptures teach us this. Moses was told that no man can see God and live. John says, no one has seen God at any time except the one who is in the bosom of the Father. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.17 blesses the invisible God now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. God is living and pure spirit, personal spirit. But nevertheless, spirit cannot be seen. The writer says, by faith, he abandoned Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Well, surely this then is a figure of speech because he did not see God with his natural eye. John Calvin tells us that what this means is that he had God before his mind, before his eyes. He kept the invisible God in all of his thoughts. Chrysostom described it as he carried God around in his thinking. During the 40 years where he labored in the wilderness of the Midianites, 
For 40 years, he kept on seeing the invisible God. He kept on thinking about the invisible God. And if we are to be more specific, it is not just thinking about God generally, but rather about the character of God and the work of God. He kept before him the presence of God. He was not alone. And God eventually demonstrated in the burning bush that he was a living God. You see, he saw there on the backside of the mountain of, in Midian, he saw this bush spontaneously burning, but the, the bush was not being consumed because God was teaching him that he lives and that he lives by his own power. He does not rely upon an exterior, external source for his life. He has life in himself. And this God that he met in the desert of Midian was always with him. You see, he kept on seeing. He endured by seeing the invisible God, by reflecting upon God's intimate presence with him. He kept on viewing not only God's intimate presence. He kept on seeing God's power. God's almighty power, the God who is able to rule and who rules and governs his universe and guides the course of history, he kept the power of God before him. Now, I would want to suggest to you that by seeing the invisible God, not only was he thinking upon God's presence and God's power, but he was thinking upon God's promises given to Abraham and promises that would be fulfilled when he led his people out and brought them into the land. He kept before him the invisible God. His presence, his power, and his promises. We have seen two things regarding the character of faith as exhibited in the life of Moses. We have seen that faith identifies with the suffering people of God and with Christ. That faith endures by seeing the invisible God. But the third thing we learn about faith from the life of Moses is that authentic faith relies upon God's redemptive provision of salvation. He makes one final comment regarding Moses' faith before he goes on in verse 29 to talk about the faith of the Exodus generation. And he says that Moses' faith was seen in the institution of the Passover. In verse 28, by faith. He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. You know, Exodus 12 contains instructions given by God to Moses regarding the Passover. By this point in the narrative in Exodus, God had already sent nine plagues upon the Egyptians. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and God had also hardened his heart because God intended to show his glory in him. And in Exodus 12, the Lord informs Moses of the tenth and the most dangerous, the most damaging, the most devastating plague that he would send. He was going to send an angel of death who would go throughout the household of the Egyptians. And he would slay the firstborn son in every family. And the Lord gave to Moses the only remedy by which the Israelites could be spared from the angel of death. In fact, he tells them that they had to sacrifice a lamb or a kid, one year old. They had to take the blood of the animal and daub it on the two sides of the doorposts of their home and over the lintel, the top of the door. They had to eat the lamb that was roasted, and they had to do so hurriedly with their shoes on and ready to march. But the central, the central issue in the instruction given was they had to slay a lamb. They had to apply the blood in Exodus Chapter 12, the Lord tells them what will happen when they apply the blood. 
He says, now, in verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There's only one way that they could escape. It was by killing the animals and applying the blood over the doorposts and on the side posts of the house in which they lived. They could not devise another scheme of escape from the angel of death. They couldn't think, you know what, I, I need to fortify the doors and the windows, get bars, more bars, more locks to keep him out. They couldn't think we could trick the angel of death by drawing the blinds or blowing out all the candles in our home and hiding in the dark under the bed. None of that would work. They had to have the blood applied over the doorpost of the house. And on that night, when the angel of death came to Egypt, he began to go through the household of the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in the families because the angel of death struck down the firstborn. But there was not a cry in the households of the Israelites because they were covered under the blood that was shed. And the point is this. You see, authentic faith is that which relies upon God's redemptive, upon God's saving provisions. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he was destroyed and the firstborn, that he, lest he, was, he would destroy the firstborn should touch them. And so then there are these three points that are raised about the nature of true faith. True faith, as seen in the life of Moses, is that which identifies with the suffering people of God and with Jesus Christ. True faith endures by seeing the God who is invisible. And true faith is that which relies solely upon the redemptive provision of God for salvation. We want to draw from this some lessons regarding faith. First of all, my friend, we notice from Moses' life that faith is a living, active, and dynamic power in the heart of God's people. See, Moses' faith was no museum piece, a beautiful statue to be admired but nevertheless dead. His faith was living and active. It is by faith that he accomplished great things. It is by faith that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It is by faith that he got up and decided to leave Egypt. It is by faith that he trusted in God's provision for salvation in the sacrificial lamb that was slain. You see, it, this faith resided in his will and in his mind. And I'm not then by suggesting that this faith is that which he exercised. I'm not then adopting a Pelagian view of salvation. I am not arguing that somehow we are unfallen creatures and that we have faith latently residing in our hearts. No, faith comes as God's gift. And the exercise of faith is only by the power of God. You can't read the end of Hebrews, without realizing that everything we do is through God's power. In Hebrews 13, 20, the writer says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus. It is God who works in us. It is he who enables us to exercise faith. But faith is an activity of the human heart. It is you and I who believe. And you are to have a faith that works, a faith that is living, a faith that trusts, a faith that produces good works. You see, we do not want a dead faith. Without works, faith is dead. 
We need a faith that will risk. A faith that will go against conventional wisdom. A faith that acts without seeing. For the just shall live by faith and not by sight. And this is exactly what he did. He was an active faith. A faith that took risks because he trusted in God. And that's the faith that we need. A living, vibrant faith. A faith that will act. That will trust God. But secondly, the faith that we are to possess must be a faith that is not ashamed to identify with Christ. You see, this was important for the first century hearers. They were being persecuted. They were thinking of renouncing and turning back. And the writer makes it clear that they needed to continue to trust. And by so doing, they must continue to stand with the people of God who suffer for him. In our culture, we want a pain-free life. We hate the idea of suffering or discomfort. But the commitment to Jesus Christ will bring us into conflict with the world. There is a cost to faith in Christ. But you and I must nevertheless, regardless of the cost to be paid, identify with God's people, the church, and we must identify ultimately with Christ himself. Our Lord Jesus could say, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and let him follow me. You see, true faith is not a shame of Jesus Christ. True faith identifies with him and with his church. True faith is willing to turn its back upon the pleasures of the world and the sins of the world to identify with Christ. Why? Because in true faith, we are looking to a greater reward, a reward that is held and reserved and kept in heaven for God's people. You see, true faith is able to estimate the wealth of this world and realize that it will not last and sees that there is a prize that is eternal that lasts forever and ever. True faith identifies with Christ. Do you have that faith? Or are you ashamed to own him? Because, my friends, if you are ashamed to own, own him in this life, he will be ashamed to own you before the Father and before the angels in heaven. Moses was not afraid to give up Egypt for the despised people of God. And in our world, the church is despised. We are the offscoring of the world. We are hated and we are reviled. But you must choose the right side. And the right side is never the popular side. The right side is never the easy way, but the difficult way that leads ultimately to glory. Where do you stand? I know that many of you this morning, yes, have identified with Christ, but some of you are so concerned about your reputation before your friends and the world. You will not come out. You will, you will forever be in the closet because you want to be a closet Christian because it's safe. But I'm going to say to you, my friends, don't play it safe. Identify with Christ and let the world laugh because ultimately you will have the last laugh. But I want to say something else more about faith. True faith endures, my friends, by seeing the invisible God. How did Moses endure? He endured by seeing the invisible God. These, these believers to whom the writer addresses this letter originally were thinking of cutting and running. They were suffering from some form of spiritual cowardice. And he's saying to them that you must endure throughout this epistle. There's a call to endure, to go on. And he draws from this Old Testament stalwart as a man whose faith persevered. And he says, this is how he did it. He did it by seeing the invisible God. For many, it is nonsense to talk about seeing an invisible God. It was the mathematician, William Clifford, in the 19th century, who said, it is wrong 
always and everywhere for anyone to believe on the basis of insufficient evidence. And seeing the invisible God, believing in an invisible God would be for Clifford insufficient evidence. In the 20th century, Anthony Flew, the Oxford philosopher, before he had this deathbed conversion to theism, argued that it was nonsense to believe in an invisible God. And he draws upon the parable of the invisible gardener. You know, how this Christian and an atheist were dis discussing. They went into the forest and they came across a garden that was well kept. And the Christian said, no, there is a gardener who did this. And the atheist says, no, it's just by nature. And they argue back and forth. So eventually they said, well, let's try and find this gardener. Well, nobody's ever seen this invisible gardener. They electrify the fence, but nobody heard a cry. There was no invisible gardener to be found. He talked about Christian belief dying by a thousand cuts. Then ultimately, he's arguing that we cannot hold to an invisible God if we cannot prove the circumstances by which he would not exist. The notion of seeing God who is invisible is rejected outright in a materialistic environment, in a materialistic world. But the saints of old kept on believing, kept on journeying with God by seeing the invisible God. Not because they had insufficient evidence, but because they had sufficient evidence. You see, God had revealed himself in conscience. God had revealed himself in nature. God had revealed himself in his spoken word to his prophets. And for us in these days, God has even taken a more decisive step in revealing himself in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible. And the Old Testament saints, they kept on seeing the invisible God. The way in which they were able to persevere is that they had this great reality before them, the unseen God. It is David who says, in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, therefore I shall not be moved. The psalmist in one, Psalm 121 says, He looks to the hills from whence his help cometh. My help cometh from the Lord who makes heaven and earth. This is a God, he says, who never slumbers or sleeps. You see, how did they endure? They kept on seeing a gracious and powerful. They kept on seeing a good God before them. And when they could not hear his voice, when they saw no evidence of his work, they kept on looking to him. And this God, this invisible God, granted them invisible power and invisible grace that they might survive. Listen, if you are to endure, you must see the invisible. You must see the God who created the world and upholds the world. The God who journeys with you. The God who is invisible and gives you invisible help against your invisible enemies. You must trust in this God. This is how they persevered, by seeing the invisible. Because they lived by faith and not by sight. But if you are to have the faith of Moses and genuine faith, not only must you identify with God's people, see God who is invisible, you must ensure that your faith is based upon the right object. You know, ultimately, it is not so much the greatness of our faith which is commended, whereas we are called to have strong faith, not weak faith. But what makes faith great is not so much the quality of our faith, whether it is strong or it is weak. What truly makes faith great is the object upon which faith rests. You see, Moses, his faith rested upon God, the invisible God. 
his faith rested upon the provision of God for his deliverance. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. He rested upon God's provision for his deliverance, which is a sacrificial lamb. It is rather interesting that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, identifies the Passover lamb with Christ. For he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. My friends, if the Passover lamb was able to save Moses and those in the household of Israel, how much then will this greater Passover lamb who is Christ save us who believe in him? You see, we are a sinful people. But the only way we can escape eternal destruction, eternal damnation, we must take shelter under the umbrella of Christ's blood. My friends, the last past week we have been experiencing lots of rain. And an umbrella comes in very handy in times like these. You need an umbrella to cover you from the wrath of God and the anger of God. And God has advanced one means by which we might be spared and delivered from his anger. That is the blood of Jesus. You must take shelter under the blood of Christ. If you find yourself this morning sinful, if you think that you cannot by any way, shape, or form save yourself, if you think that you're not worthy of salvation, that's good news. I want to give you even better news. You are to believe in Jesus Christ who died. You are to shelter under his death. You are to believe that he died for your sins. And if you trust God's provision for your salvation, the sacrificial lamb that is Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. He trusted God's provision. And if you, despite your sins, will trust in Christ who was crucified, and raised from the dead, then his blood will be sufficient to forgive you and to spare you and deliver you from the angel of death and from that eternal death that will come at the end of this age. May God grant that you have a faith that identifies with God's church and with Jesus Christ, a faith that will endure by looking to the invisible God for your help, and a faith that relies on God's provision for salvation, his sacrificial lamb, his crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for his sake, amen. Would you pray with me, friends? And Father, we pray that our faith may be genuine. We pray that, Lord, we may not be ashamed of you in this age and in this world, but that we'll be quick to identify with our Savior and to go forth outside the camp bearing his reproach. Help us, Lord, not to seek to be a friend of the world, for friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we pray, Lord, keep our eyes fixed on Christ, that we may keep on seeing our God who is invisible, nevertheless, yet real, and that the invisible God will be our source of strength and our protection and our provision through life. We pray that all of us might cast ourselves upon your Lamb, the Lamb that you have set aside and given for our salvation, and through him be saved. So, Lord, may these words resonate in our hearts and produce fruit and a harvest of good that it might save and strengthen your people for Jesus' sake. Amen. And we would invite our ushers to come and collect our morning tithes and offerings. Please take this opportunity to meditate on what we've what we've just heard.
This is a busy time in the life of our church. I would just like to point out a few important announcements. Uh, We have a new church directory, so if you are a family and you need a new 2017 church directory, please see Danny in the concourse. I'll ask Nathan to come with an announcement. Uh, As he's coming up, I just want to point out again, the annual business meeting is coming up on the 14th, uh, sorry, on the 17th. Uh, Please, ministry leaders, bring in your reports very soon. Nathan. Good morning, everybody. I would like to draw your attention in your bulletins to this flyer. It says, One Life, what is it all about? We will be running a course here at Jarvis Street Baptist Church called Christianity Explored. This is an evangelism and outreach course. It's an introduction to the basic message of Christianity through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be running this for eight weeks from May 19th to June 30th here at the church on Friday evenings. There will be a free dinner provided. There will be a time of study in the Gospel of Mark, and then there will be times of discussion. Questions can be asked, questions will be answered, and there will be times of prayer. Now, who is this for? This is for you if you are new to Christianity or you recognize you need and would benefit from an introduction to what we believe about the message of the Bible. This is a a good time for you to get rooted in Scripture, to learn and to grow. It is especially for those who are seeking the truth about Christianity, for those who don't know the Lord. This may be a co-worker, a neighbor, a family member, or a friend. We want to encourage those who are believers who know the word that you only attend if you are bringing someone who's unsaved or someone who's seeking. This isn't a course for the whole church. It's, it's an evangelism and an outreach course. I also want to encourage you to take these next few months to pray for this. We're seeking to reach out to those around us who are lost especially those who we may know, to bring them into the church, to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ and his word. So please be praying. I'll be in the concourse after the service. If you have any questions, I'll have a sign-up sheet there. Please come to me or speak to David as well. Thank you. Very briefly, thank you, Nathan, by the way. I would also like to point out this is the last Sunday to register for the Pregnancy Care Center Relay. So please talk to Eddie Gibbons if you want or can sign up. And then finally, the events of our week are on the back of your bulletin. We'll see that choir practice is Tuesdays at 6.30. Uh, Very importantly, prayer meeting and Bible study, Wednesdays at 7.30 in the Greenway Chapel. And of course, Mandarin Bible study Friday at 7, Kids Club Friday at 7.15. These are our announcements. At this time, let's stand and sing, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Let's stand. Oh 
presence here with us this morning despite all the inconveniences in getting here. I want to remind you that this evening at our service we have the Lord's table, the communion supper, the Lord's supper, and we ask that you would consider joining us for that important event. Let's pray. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father, may the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen.